Thank you, Father. Lord, we just lift up this moment to you. I ask for your grace. Because we can't hear without you. We can't speak without you. There's nothing we can do without you, Lord. But I thank you that we have you, Father, the fullness of the power of your Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you just move upon the hearts of your people, the church of Jesus Christ, the one, the only that Jesus bled and died for, the bride, the saints of the Most High God. I'm asking that you look past and see the blood. I'm asking that you see the blood in us, the call of God, the mark upon our foreheads, Lord, that you begin to move and minister to us in a way that you never have before, that you begin to awaken our hearts to you. Thank you for your mercy. We ask for it more. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. So you guys are finishing up. I just want to um, thank you guys so much for helping us today. Shannon and Jesse. And they came from uh, Mount Home. And those of you who don't know, we started a home group over there on Tuesday nights at Bruce and Lori's house. You guys wave your hand. This is Bruce and Lori. If you guys haven't met them, you need to need to get to know them. And uh, Jesse and Shannon were there this week, and and uh, if you know anybody over that direction, might just uh, get with them and say, hey, you know, um, I got a friend over here, and maybe you get at the address and and uh, invite them. Also, uh, if you guys have kids, is Olivia here? Hey, Olivia, happy birthday. <laughs> I didn't make you a cake, but you probably wouldn't want me to anyway. Um, thank you for coming, those of you who are new, uh, those of you who are, who are not new. Uh, welcome. Michael McKenna, thanks for coming, guys. Good to see y'all sneak, sneaking in over there. Um, I just bless y'all. I bless you guys and the Lord, and there's some things on my heart that I want to share with you. Um, that I feel like God really wants to deliver, but at the same time, they are they are a piece of the puzzle that we've been talking about recently. And if you've missed the previous, I don't know how many messages now, then this is going to really be hard for you to follow. Um, but I pray that uh, you're able to follow me, and if not, then um, that's okay. Just ask the Lord to give you something, and He will. Uh, if you want to catch up, you can go to the website here, and underneath the Sonship tab... Uh, you will see the last four, five, six messages speaking specifically about identity. Um, identity is not for um, you, per se. Um, it is for him. Because his expression through you is his glory. And he has to have a proper expression. He didn't create us to be junk. Okay? If you view yourself that way in any capacity, it's because... You have fully, I'm not yet fully immersed yourself into how God thinks about you. 
If you have a thought about yourself that God doesn't have about you, then you're in division with God. You're not in unity with him. Does that make sense? We have to retrain our minds into believing the word of God, not how we feel, and not theological issues. Okay? Theology is not scripture. Okay? Theology is simply the study of God, which I find very ironic because you're going to use the brain God created to understand the thing that created it. Nowhere in the world have I ever seen a software program be able to understand the thoughts and intents of the designer. You understand that? You're the software program. He's the designer. Whatever capacity he's given you is not enough to understand him. It's never happened. Study him all you want. You will just end up completely, and I encourage you to study him, but you're going to end up realizing that you're going to have to just fall at his feet and go, who is worthy for such things? There is no amount of head knowledge you're going to get to make yourself comfortable in your version of Christianity because as soon as you become comfortable, God's going to change something in you or a circumstance around you that's not going to make sense, and then you're going to be forced to have to go back to Scripture and try to figure out what he's doing. You with me? It's good to be on God's page. So I encourage you uh, to go listen to these if you can, uh, and if you can't, that's, that's fine too. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching this morning, if that's okay with you guys. So I don't know how animated or excited I'll get, um, but it's still the Word of God, okay? Um, how many of you guys have really noticed that there's been quite a bit of, um, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say attack, but just pressure against your life recently? Anybody? Okay. That means you're doing good. It really does. It means you're doing good. See, the devil doesn't fight against something that has no value. All right? The more intensity that happens in your life, the more things that come against you, the more God is about to do. Do you think the devil wants to waste what little time he has left on something that is of no value? No. He's a loser, but he's intelligent. Okay? He's not stupid. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't have new tricks. He just has new generations. This is why we need to honor those who've gone before us in age and wisdom, not just to the other side, but those who are beyond us in years and spiritual maturity because they are very in tune to what the devil and to both what God and the devil are doing. Does that make sense? Okay. So did you make it to Luke 2? All right. So I want to talk to you about something that's intentionally done in our lives that we mistake as just going through hardships. God will align your life to undergo a certain amount of trial in order to give you a choice to see where you're going to bow. Okay? What we call trial, God calls sifting. These are moments of separation. When you're going through difficulties, whether it's mentally, financially, physically, emotionally, maritally, family, or all of the above put together, these are moments where God puts you in a position to choose something. Because without these moments, there is no choice. Do you, do you understand this? You have to have a moment of pain to be able to choose what you believe. 
Yet the most of our life is just trying to get God to remove the pain. If he removes the pain, he removes the choice. Why is there a choice? Because that's what determines what you love. The choice is everything. It reveals the depth of the love of God or the love of something else in our life. Are you with me? I don't know who you are, but there's a massive call of God on your life. But there's also a massive spirit of oppression that's trying to push you. Um, don't give in to it, okay? I see a lot of things that want to steal from you. You get to determine whether they, whether they win or not. But he's for you, okay? All right. Um, I want to encourage you to embrace your process. You know what that means? It means you need to really learn to value those moments where you're really suffering, when it's really hard. Because that's when you prove to God what you believe about your identity. It's easy to say you're a son whenever you've heard some encouraging teachings and messages about sonship, and I've proved to you biblically the nature of God, the intention of God, the covenant of God, and everything that revolves around those types of things. But the meat and the potatoes of who you are is determined in that pinched point moment when you are standing before God and a choice that is opposite of him. You will not know the true root of, of your ability to apprehend your own identity until you're placed in a position to choose the opposite. You won't know how much that is important to you or him until you have another option. So there's this version of Christianity that's been going around as long as I've been here and probably before I got here that basically God exists to keep bad things from happening or to fix bad things that have happened. And that's the entire crux of what we call modern-day religion. We cry out to him to fix all of our problems. Does that make sense? Have you ever had that kind of mentality in your faith before? That kind of relationship where it only revolves around God being some sort of medicine bottle? And you call out to him and take him whenever you need him, and then you put him back on the shelf, right? That's the idea. We know that's wrong, but that's the idea of most people. How many of you, God, got your attention when something horrible happened to you? That's not the intention of relationship, is it? It's great that we can make up with our spouses whenever we have fights, but the fight is not the intention, is it? It's not the plan. Does this make sense? But the, but the fight reveals the nature. Do you understand? The fight reveals the nature. I'm not just talking about spouses now. Okay, I'm talking about... The fight of our life. It could, it could talk about spouses and children and things of that nature because the, the principle is true in and of every realm. The fight reveals your nature. What you are when you're pinched is what you really are. Okay? That doesn't mean in those moments you're not a son. It just means you're a very weak one. And you have to be strengthened. 
You have to learn how to go through suffering. You have to learn how to fight. You have to learn how to grow because what pushes you in those moments is what you've carved your nature into actually being. This is why I'm not impressed with theology. You know why? Because theology, you can sit here and tell me what you believe, but your life may not be pinched. And if your life is not pinched, I'm not seeing the real you. All I'm hearing is what you think you believe. But what you really believe is what you're going to do when the devil starts pushing on you. You with me? We need moments of pain and hardship. Yet most of the time our entire relationship with Jesus as sons is trying to get those moments to stop happening. How many of you actually have prayed, Lord, make me like Jesus? Three of you? Wow. Okay. When you pray that prayer, let me tell you what's about to happen. If you ever pray that prayer, it's going to get much worse before it gets better. Because a son learns obedience through the things that he suffers. You want to be a son? I'm a son of God. Get ready. Buckle your seatbelt because it will get worse before it gets better. Why? Because the, the suffering proves your love. You with me? Just the same way when Jesus was on the cross and he suffered, it proved his love for us. The same way when whenever we're put in a pinch point moment to be able to decide between God and something else, we tell God what we're really, truly believing. That's your theology. The moment when you're pinched and you choose that thing is your true theology. I don't care what you think you believe. I don't care what your doctrines are on baptism or anything else. What I care about is how you respond when everything's taken away from you. When nobody's standing with you and you're isolated and everybody's rejected you and there's nobody around you, how do you respond? Does your faith hold? Okay? God has to prepare us to be what he died to make us. Make sense to you? Sons that are born are sons that have to be prepared. Just because you have a birth doesn't mean everything stops. Those of us with children know that that is just the beginning. I mean, that's when the real work starts. You can have a son, but if you prepare them the wrong way, what are you preparing? Because as a father, a good father knows that there are certain things that are going to come to that son's life. And the son is oblivious to them. So the father's job is to prepare the son for the pinch. Why? Because that's the moment, the proving moment, where the son proves what he's become. True or not? When you fall away from the Lord, or you have these seasons where you distance yourself from Jesus, it's because there's something being exposed in your nature that's against the love of God. You've been pinched, and then because you were pinched, you did the same thing that Adam and Eve did, is you, you ran away from him instead of to him. And so therefore you were exposed. Does that mean that's who you are? No, it means that's the nature that's fighting against the love of God, and you need to crucify that thing and come back to the, to the Lord. 
it means that you need to come before the Lord and let him strengthen the part of you that wants to come back to him. And it means you need to focus on that part of you. And even if it's hard, and these things are still trying to draw you away, because you're a son, you choose to come back to your reality as a son, to stay in the Father's house and learn the things that he's teaching you. Because if you don't, you are going to go back the wrong direction, and when you're in that position and in that posture and in that frame of mind of the old man, when you're pinched, you're going to respond like the old man. And when you respond like the old man, you know what the outcome is going to be? Shame. How many of you ever fell away from God and felt good about it? When you respond in the Adamic nature, you receive the fullness of the, of the nature of the Adamic. When you respond in the nature of, of Jesus and the, and the sons uh, of God that he's given us, then we receive that nature as well. Hope and life and peace are only possible for true sons. They're not, impossible, they're not possible for po- imposters. An imposter cannot generate the fruits of the Spirit in the moment of a pinch. It's impossible. You know why Jesus says, turn the other cheek? It's not because it's a command. It's a response to a true son. If you, have to t- if you get struck across the face and have to tell yourself to turn the other cheek, you probably aren't operating organically. Now, that may be a good place to start. But what I'm saying is that once the nature of God is built inside of you, when you're struck, you naturally turn without even thinking about it because it's the nature of God. When you're in the pinch, when you're in that moment of the press, what you are comes out and you don't have to tell yourself to do it because it's become who you are. It's not what you believe anymore. You with me? Like I said a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again, Jesus did not die to give us something to believe in. He died to give us something to become. Identity is about substance, not theology. Okay? In fact, the substance of Jesus is what created pure theology. (laughs) Because you can't study God without studying the substance of Jesus, who was a son. Does this make sense to you? True substance guides true theology. See, so, so, so let, me, let me just say this, guys. Hardships are not just something to get through. But, but that's how we view them. Well, I just got to get through this. Well, if you don't learn what you're supposed to learn, guess what? It, is, it, it either isn't going to end or you're going to go through it again. Why? Because a good father will prepare you until you're prepared. You understand this? Okay. Hardships are mere opportunities that God has given to refine what he made you to be. Suffering pulls out of you what you are and what you aren't at the same time. And it gives you the opportunity to choose, which one am I really? And your faith will determine your reality at that point. When you see sin in your life, you see what the devil is intended for you to be. And you also see at the same time what God intended for you to be. And guess which one becomes real? Whichever one you choose. Whichever one you believe. You know, depression is only possible if you exit the presence of the Lord. Show me where depression and Jesus exist in the same place. 
can't. Light and dark cannot inhabit the same space. People who are depressed, I don't care how much they say they love the Lord, they believe something else. Okay? All right. So God builds sons. He builds them. He doesn't just create them. He builds them. He's not a, fa- he's not a father who just makes babies and leaves. He stays in the house. And he's with you always. And he's constantly there as a father. It's interesting. We'll get there. But in Psalm 23, it says, your rod and your staff. Why was there two? Because they're two different things. One is indicative, when you look it up in the Hebrew, of correction. And the other is indicative of leading and, and, and um, consoling. He does both. And there's times when you come before the Lord where he's really going to whip your butt. And then there's other times where he's going to be the father you need him to be in compassion and mercy. Why? Because the situation demands it? No. Because your preparation demands it. You understand there's a goal, right? I think Christians get confused because they lose sight of the goal. Your goal is not to make money and pay your taxes. You, you, you do get that, right? You're not born just to be able to be a cog in the wheel of the United States government and then have them tax your family when you die because you died. That's not the goal, is it? You have a, an end result that God wants you to be at at some point in your life. But guess what? You don't get there without preparation. And if you hold God away from the preparatory process, you hold yourself away from your own destiny. Everybody wants to know what their gifts and their callings and their destiny is. Listen to me. You're never going to figure those out as long as you keep running from the preparation God's trying to get you to. In other words, you won't be fulfilled without your suffering. This is the kind of preaching that everybody starts reaching for their wallet. Tithe goes up after these kind of messages. No, I'm I'm kidding. Nobody likes to hear these types of messages. But guess what? Whenever suffering happens, nothing makes sense because nobody told you the truth. Because they were too concerned about getting your money and making you feel good about yourself that when you finally get pinched and you see something come out of you that's absolutely disgusting, you don't know where to stand because the only thing you see is the nature that you don't want to see and then you believe it because you focus on it. You don't reach your destiny without your suffering. Did Jesus reach his destiny without his suffering? And why do you think you're going to reach yours without the same thing? You know what makes people, sons of God, the true sons of God, so powerful? Is that if they begin to learn to suffer over a long period of time, and that suffering leads them closer and closer to the love of God in their life, tell me what the devil's going to threaten them with in the end. 
absolutely nothing. What are you going to do? Treat me like you've always been treating me? Bring it on. Right? The only thing you lose is what you're going to lose anyway. You cannot lose the things that he cannot touch. Does it make sense to you? Okay, so there's, you guys know who Watchman Nee is? If you don't, you need to read some of his stuff. But he says that God is more interested in the worker than the work. Modern day Christianity, we're more interested in the work than the worker. You know how that's proven? You go to church somewhere, the moment you show up more than two or three times, you know what the first thing they want to do? They want to plug you into a Sunday school leadership department. Because they don't care who you are. They don't care what your character is. They just want the work to go on. And they can plug a complete psychopath in there with your children and not even know or care because they just want a warm body in there to be able to keep the work going. I think I just stepped on a toe of a, of a religious spirit somewhere there. God doesn't... God's more concerned about the worker than the work. Why? Because if the worker is accurate, the work will be pure. But if the worker is impure and shattered and fragmented, how is he going to how is he going to heal anyone else? Take a broken person and tell them to fix the world. How does that work? God's interested in your preparation. He's interested in what he's doing inside of you because what he's doing inside of you is going to be for the benefit of someone else who is broken. God fixes us. He repairs us so that we can repair others. But we have to go through the process. If you don't go through the process, you have no authority in anyone else's life to be able to heal. If you meet a broken person on the street and you're still shattered yourself, yes, you may be able to speak the name of Jesus to them. Yes, you may be able to witness to them and have power. But guess what? Your power is greatly undermined because you don't even believe your own healing. Therefore, you're ministering out of the spirit of poverty and orphanism than sonship because you're still trying to feel worthy of yourself. And yet you know these truths. You aren't these truths. Theology makes it easy because you just have to regurgitate what someone else has told you. Identity is difficult because it actually takes a substance in the moment. Jesus didn't know the word of God. He is the word of God. Whose image are we created? In His. So we're not just supposed to know the Word of God. We're supposed to be the Word of God. The, whoever Jesus was, is, and is, was the intention of our new identity. The Bible says the Word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. So what's the plan? That the Word of God would be made flesh in us. When it's your flesh, it's your natural reaction. It makes sense. So before you go into condemnation, understand that babies have the full capacity of being an adult. The only difference is a lot of time and suffering between A and B. Okay? It takes a father to be able to raise the children. This is why Paul told uh, his church, he says, you, you, you don't have many fathers. You've got a lot of teachers, but you don't have any fathers. One thing for somebody want to get up and tell you some revelation they had, but the problem is, is that that's not your revelation, so it's really not going to do you a whole lot of good. You know what revelation is? It's real simple. I used to have people come to me all the time like, oh, brother, I had a revelation. I asked the Lord one time, I was like, you know, what is this? It's, 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 one, it's the revealing of Jesus. When you see him, you realize where you were wrong. 
That's what revelation is. It's divine correction upon bad human thinking. When you see him, you realize how wrong you were about him. But guess what? When you see him, you will be like him. Because what we behold is what we become. And if you behold your sin, and you behold your old nature, and you believe in the power of that man or woman, what do you become? Wouldn't they? Am I making any sense? Okay. So my difficulty is my classroom. Is where I learn. It is the classroom of God. Fights and struggles and difficulties and things that just push me to my limit where there's nothing left of me. You catch me on a good day, I got lots of patience. Catch me on a bad one, I probably got a little bit less. What's the difference between me and God? Love is patient. He doesn't possess patience. He is patience. You see the difference? We're trying to operate in patience. He is patience. What's his design for us? No longer that we operate in patience, that he makes us into patience. That we can be nothing else, no matter how pinched we are, because it is who we are. With me? And I say this, I say this a lot. People are like, well, I just need more patience in my life. I need to pray for patience. I've been asking God for patience. You don't need patience. You need love because love is patient. The more loving you become, the more patient you become. In fact, it's interesting. The more loving you become, the more of the fruits of the Spirit you have naturally operating in your life. Okay. Within your preparation, you're going to eventually find your purpose. I mean, you want to know what your purpose for your life is. One, it's to glorify God, absolutely, first and foremost. But you can't glorify God unless you're operating in his nature. But two, the purpose of your life probably has a name, and you haven't met him or her yet. Or maybe you have. Because people... Are your purpose. Not you. Not your polished morality. Not the, you know, kids finally obeying and the wife finally getting in line, the husband finally stopped being such a dominating dictator. That's not the purpose of your life. Those things are good. But Jesus has more sons than just in your home. You understand that? It's amazing how many people I talk to that never pray for anybody more than their family. Because they don't have a heart for the family of God. Because they don't have God's heart. They may love God, but they haven't been transformed into God's heart. When you can love somebody who isn't your blood just as much as you can love somebody who is your blood, then you begin to understand the love of God. Okay, so it takes God years to perfect a son for only a moment of work. Jesus was prepared for 30 years for three and a half years of ministry. This is the standard. This is Jesus. He was prepared for 30 years for you and me. He had 30 years of preparation. What happened in that time frame? A lot of pain, a lot of submission, a lot of suffering. That's what happened. 
You with me? He had to live life like you and I do. He had to go to a job. He had to work. People say he was a carpenter. I disagree. There's no trees in Israel. I've been there. It is a desert. There's lots of rocks. That word carpenter means construction worker. He was probably a stonemason, which means qualifies him to work on hard hearts like yours and mine. He had a purpose. He worked every day. There was difficulty. There was trial. There was submission. There was misunderstanding. You understand that his, his brothers and sisters did not like him? <laughs> they made fun of him several times, mocked him. Why don't you go up to the feast? Show yourself if you're the son of God. I mean, imagine living your whole life knowing who you are and everybody around you mocking you like thinking, oh yeah, he thinks he's God. Imagine walking your whole life and every time you walk down the street, they're like, oh yeah, that's, the, that's that bastard child because the rumor was that Mary got impregnated with a Roman soldier. That's why in John uh, 6 or 8, one of their, their, their Pharisees look at him and go, we know who your father is. We know you're, you're Ill- illegitimately born. And he says, you don't know my father, because if you knew my father, you'd know me. Imagine growing up with that kind of ridicule, small town gossip. You think Harrison's bad. Go to Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 44. Jesus is being brought to, to Israel for a feast. And as they were leaving, Mary and Joseph, it says in verse 44, supposed that he was with them in the company, and they went another day farther. And they sought him amongst their family and their acquaintances and friends. And when they didn't find him, they turned back to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. What's interesting to me is that we get so super spiritual that we won't even listen to anybody who doesn't have the same theology as us anymore. You know that? We're so divisive. Jesus is God here, and he's 12 years old. and He's schooling these Pharisees, but it also says he was listening to them, and he was asking them questions. It's amazing to me. That he actually sat and would hear somebody else's version of Torah, which is what he was. <laughs> and they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Why have you treated me like this? Isn't that what our whole relationship with God is worked up as? Why are you treating me like this, God? Jesus, why are you treating me like this? See, she thought it was just about her, because she's human like us, Right? Amazing how many times we accuse God and call it prayer. That was good. Free. I'll throw that out there for you. You just write that in your Bible. Why have you treated me like this? Your father and I sought you sorrowing. And he said, How is it that you sought me? Didn't you know that I'd be about in my father's house? And they understood not the thing which he spoke to them, which is most of the time how we hear the Lord. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. Listen to this further, this verse. Listen to this. And he was submissive to them. He, sub, he subjected himself to them. 
But his mother kept these things in her heart. In verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Increase is found in submission. What does it say? It says he submitted to them. See, he knew who he wanted to be. He knew where he, he needed to be. He knew where the Father wanted him to be. He wasn't, he wasn't out of order at all. But guess what? His human authority said, I don't care where you think you need to be. You need to be with me. True or not? And what did he do? He was subject to them. He submitted. This is God now. Follow me. This is the Lord. This is the Ancient of Days. This is the very breath of God. This is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And he was subject to them. And the next verse after that, it says, and he increased in wisdom and stature. You cannot divorce increase from submission. Who was wrong in this situation? Mary was. But does it matter who's right and wrong, or does it matter whether you have a heart to submit? You know what theology will tell you? Who's right and who's wrong, so that way you don't have to submit. You know, some of the most anointed people I've ever met in my life were people who had, who had a submitted heart and a submitted nature. People want the anointing without submission. They want everybody else to bow to what they see as truth, period. Jesus knew who was wrong, yet he still surrendered. So in other words, let me say it this way. How does this relate to what I'm talking about with preparation? When you're in a fight with somebody, does it matter who's right, or does it matter what posture you show as a son? Do you want increase in your life? When did he increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man? When he went back home where he had to be prepared. See, he wanted to step out in ministry, didn't he? That's why he was there. He knew there's was there was something beating in his heart. His heart is literally beating for ministry. I got to go be. I got to learn. I got These people need me. But guess what? God said, no, you're going to go home. And he did. And he spent the next, terrible at math, 18 years, doing what? Nothing. Working. Taking the most of every opportunity he had to be with Abba. Learning what it was like to be a human. Suffering. Obeying. Yes, sir, daddy. No, no ma'am, mama. Learning how to be a son. The character he was developing. You say, why is this even important? Because what Jesus did between the ages of 12 and 30 determined his ability in Matthew chapter 4 when he faced the enemy. Who he was before he got to that point was formed by suffering. And when he was put in the pinch, he showed himself as a son. And it wasn't just because he was Jesus. It was because he learned how to be a son. You can claim it all you want, but unless you learn the ins and outs and the intricacies and the DNA of who God made you to be, you're not going to know how to operate when you're pushed. Because I know people 
that have been following Jesus a long time. Personal people, people I've known for years, even some family members, following Jesus for long periods of time. But when they're pushed, they act just like the world. Rejection and self-pity and control and complaining and isolation and judgment and bitterness. You know why? Because they've got a lot of theology and no character. Because they rejected the suffering moments in their life. You know how you reject a suffering moment? It's real easy. You reject a suffering moment when you blame the person who's causing you to suffer. Because for you in that moment, it's all about right and wrong and who's right and who's wrong. And if they're wrong, you don't have to suffer. No, it seems like Jesus was right, our sin was wrong, and he still had to suffer. I don't know, maybe your Bible says something different, but mine doesn't. Mine says he suffered for me. My sin killed him. If you would have been like, well, they're, they're wrong, Father, and I'm right, so I, don't, I shouldn't have to go through this. You know how you miss your moment is when you blame the person who's hurting you. Because without that person hurting you, you would have no opportunity to grow. So why can't you repent, change how you think, and realize that them hurting you is actually a really good thing? Without them, you don't have an opportunity to grow. Without them, you don't have an opportunity to get strong. Without them, you don't have an opportunity to make a choice. You don't have an opportunity. Without suffering, you don't have an opportunity to choose life. You just don't. But yet we're asking God constantly for a life that has no suffering, a life that has no preparation, a life that has no nothing. You with me? Wow. Have I been preaching that long, or is it, did we go long on something else? Because it's almost, Wow. Okay, increases found in submission. All right, growth is to prepare you for the power. If you had a lot of money and you had a son, you want to make sure they have the character and integrity to be able to handle the inheritance. You with me? God wants to make sure you have the integrity and character to be able to handle your inheritance. Suffering puts you in that, in that posture. Because if, if when you suffer, you suffer well, which means you don't blame the person who's suffering, but you realize that God, your Father, has control of everything, and He's the one that puts you in that position to suffer. Therefore, you realize there's a reward there. So it doesn't matter who's persecuting you. The reward is going to be yours. In other words, you get to a point in your life where you can praise God for Judas. And you can literally call him friend. Because without him, you have no opportunity for resurrection. What's the point of suffering? Resurrection. You coming out the other side looking just like the one you love. But without the pain and without the death, you have no opportunity to act like a son. You know what sons naturally do? They naturally rise. So without the pain, you don't have the opportunity to rise. God is sending you opportunities in difficulty to be like Jesus, not to act like Jesus 
when you're suffering, but to rise like Jesus after you suffer. That when you come out of that situation, you are more like the master than when you went in. I say this all the time to people I counsel and people I disciple. My enemies have taught me way more than my friends ever have. The people who have opposed me and tried to crucify me and tried to speak ill against me and have hammered me and said evil things about me have done so much more for me in my character and my posture before the Lord than my friends ever did. One, in my enemies, I learned what never, not, what never to do, what I did not want to be like. And two, they hurt me bad enough that I had to learn to love them. And something in me had to die to be able to do that. And when that thing died in me and I was actually able to love them, then God, see, there's a difference between being able to forgive somebody and to be able to, to, to contend in prayer for their blessing. See, some people can forgive those who've hurt them, but you can't contend in prayer for, to, to, for them to be blessed. And Jesus says, bless those who persecute you, right? Pronounce a blessing over them. We're barely at the point where we can forgive them. Why should you be able to bless them? Because in blessing them, you show the power of resurrection. In blessing them, you have the authority of coming through the pain to the other side where you know that I no longer just forgive you, but I bless you. Make sense? So, you understand that we have to grow. You understand this. Peter was able to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out devils just because of the word of God before the, the cross. True or not? But would you say he was a pure son before, at that point? No. I mean, he was fighting and arguing and wanting to take things in his own hands. He didn't have the nature of father in him. But guess what? The things he was able to do by the power of the name of Jesus, hear me now, he was able to do post-cross in his reformation because of who he was, not because of what he believed. In other words, the, the miracles got greater because of the embodiment of the truth, whereas before it was just the speaking of the truth. And the church has done really well with speaking the truth of the name of Jesus, but she's done poorly at embodying it. And why is it better? Because we know that at one point in Peter's life, when he became a son, he began to walk, and people would just sit on the street for his shadow to fall on them. People think, well, I want that kind of power. It's not the power. It's the person. You can't look at that scenario and say it's the power. It's not the power. It's the person. He embodied the thing he formerly taught. The message he preached before became who he was later on. When he walked past those people preaching the name of Jesus at the authority of the cross of Christ, at the authority of Jesus, his shadow did not heal them. But when he came into the reality of his son and he realized who he was, then who he was began to be able to have an overshadowing of those in his midst. You understand what I'm saying? So what do you want? Do you want just the message of the gospel or do you want the embodiment of the gospel? That takes preparation. 
You don't get that just because you got born again. You have the capacity. You have the potential. You have the capability. But you do not have, unless you've walked through much suffering with Jesus for many years, you do not have the embodiment. How did Peter get to his embodiment? Through betrayal. Let me tell you something. The nature that you hate inside of you is going to continue to betray you. When it does, you have a choice. To pray and to believe the one who prayed that your faith wouldn't fail or to believe that that's the best you're ever going to be and I can't ever do it, so I'm just going to quit. It's amazing how many quitters there are in the church. I don't understand. Like, what are you going to do? You're you're really going to go back to the world? You thought that was fun? Like, I don't understand. You had no peace. You had no joy. You had no purpose. You had no hope. Your best day is when you drowned yourself in some sort of substance and sat in front of a TV to not mind-numb yourself to escape from the reality that you created. And you want to quit? And go back to that. When, you're, when you encounter your own failure, you encounter the possibility of your own resurrection. Because your failure postures you in the moment for you to choose what you bow before. Matthew 4, Luke 4, whenever Jesus encounters the devil, the point wasn't whether or not um, he could beat the devil. He already did that. The point was, who is he going to bow before? That was the point. Because at the end, we finally see the, the plan of the devil. Bow before me, and I'll give you dot, dot, dot. So the ultimate reality for both powers is what? Who the sons of God bow before. Now, there was a lot of things in there that he laced in there. One being that he was the word Jesus, and the devil was trying to get Jesus to mix the word, which was himself, with unbelief. The same thing that happened in the wilderness. We know the author of Hebrews says that these people could not enter in because they did not mix the word of God with faith. Right? And so when Jesus being the the word of God, he could not mix the word of God with unbelief. So that's why the devil said, well, if you're a son, he's trying to promote doubt. He's trying to to promote unbelief. Because if we accept the doubt and the unbelief, listen, listen, then the devil knows that we don't believe we're a son. And even if we are, if we don't believe it, there's no power. Which means it's meaningless to him. You might as well be an infant sucking on a pacifier. That's how easy you are to kill in that moment. No threat. Why? The devil comes to tempt you not to see. He he comes to tempt you so that he can prove whether you have faith or not. Whether you're going to believe what the Word of God says about your life. Because in the end of it, all the temptation was about is who do you bow before? You bow before your own uh, failure and your own self-pity and your own self-hate and your own self-mutilation or what somebody else has done before you, or you bow before the Word of God and say, His plan for me is just and right and true, and it doesn't matter what has happened to me in my life. It is only one link in the chain of my eternal destiny that He's given me, and one day it will cause something to flip in this nation. 
So many Christians deny the power of their, their suffering. They miss the moment. When somebody's just speaking vile junk over you and blah, 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 you need to stop and go, this is my moment. You know why you can do that? Because you realize this is happening so that God can see what I'm going to choose. And when you realize that the person is probably more demon-possessed than human at that time, so that how can you get mad at a demon for acting like a demon? Because Jesus was perfectly able to separate the human from the demon. We're not so smart. you got to know when, when it's the person and when it's the demon. <laughs> then you can say, wait a minute, this person is not, it's not this person. I'm not going to blame them. This is my moment. This is my time to shine. This is the time to show Abba what I really believe I am, what he's really said about me. You see this? You can sit here and claim that you're a son all you want, but you know what God's waiting for? To see who you bow before when you're pinched. It's not about what comes out of your mouth. It's about what comes out of your life. With me? So temptation only reveals a greater power. It gives you the authority to choose life. Without temptation, you don't have a choice. With me? It's interesting. I'm not going to go. I don't have time to go into it. But in Matthew chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is preaching. It says he preaches as one having authority, not as the scribes and Pharisees. And then the next ch chapter over, he meets this guy who needs a, a miracle, and he's a Roman, and, and he says, hey, just say the word. I, I'm a man under authority. And Jesus says, you have great faith. The two connected together, power equals authority. Authority always is submission. A son that's not submitted has no authority, period. Even this Roman soldier knew. I have authority, therefore I submit. You have authority, therefore you submit. We have authority, therefore this thing has to submit. That's the, that's the story. Listen, if, if Jesus is submitted and you're not, there's a disconnect, which means the thing that you're fighting in your life doesn't have to submit because you're out of order. That make sense to you? If Jesus has authority and he submits and you're not submitted as a son, then that means the thing that you're going through, the thing that you're trying to exercise dominance over, doesn't have to submit because you're not submitted. Listen to me, guys. Listen to me. If there's one thing demons can see, it's somebody who's submitted or not. They know what's theirs. They recognize rebellion when they see it. They're like, oh, that's mine. And you're wallowing in it. Therefore, I don't have to listen to anything that's coming out of your mouth as far as your theology is concerned. We think just saying the right words is enough. It's not. Ask the seven sons of Sceva. It's not enough. There's a story in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm having to rush through this. There's a story in the Old Testament where Elijah is, is living in this widow's house. He performs a miracle for her to where she doesn't have to ever uh, have a food, a food problem for the, for the remainder of the drought. 
I mean, that's a powerful thing. You know this is a man of God because he has sustained her oil and her flour for, I don't know what, seven years? I mean, you'd think this has got to be a man of God. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's living in my house. He's upstairs. Ever since he's come here, I've been blessed. Then her son dies, right? And so Elijah takes him upstairs, lays upon him, breathes life back into him, brings him back downstairs and says, here's your son. You know what she says? She says, now I know. Like all the rest of the stuff didn't convince her. She says, now I know that the word of God, watch this, in your mouth is truth. In other words, the word of God in someone else's mouth may not be truth. Just ask the devil when he quoted the word of God to Jesus. The word of God was in his mouth, but it was not truth. So what I'm saying you can't just say, I'm a son. It has to be in you. Or the demons know you don't believe it. Because if you mix the word of God with unbelief, they know you don't believe in your authority. You may be able to teach it, articulate it, preach it, teach it. I mean, you might be able to just expound it better than anybody else. But if you don't believe that's who you are, then you'll never mix the word of God with faith. And how can you exercise the word of God in faith if you're never under trial? How are you going to believe for your spouse if she isn't what she's supposed to be? If she already was what she was supposed to be, you wouldn't have to believe. And vice versa. For your kids. You with me? Oh my goodness. Sorry, I'm hurrying. All the teachings of Jesus were preparation. Everything he said was preparatory for them disciples to get to a point that he wanted them to be. Understand this? Teaching comes before maturity, does it not? When you're teaching your sons and your daughters, do they actually get it the first time you talk to them? No. Teaching comes before maturity. The teaching will come. Teaching comes. Just because you can teach or regurgitate what was taught doesn't mean you own it. I can teach my children what the names of all the tools are, but they don't know how to use them. They don't understand the context. You with me? You have to be taught. You have to be taught through suffering. Listen, the sons of God were designed to operate in pain. You were custom made to not only survive, but thrive in death. And yet we wonder why our lives are always so difficult. God puts his brightest lights in the darkest places. Why are you shocked? Change my situation. He's like, no, you're the light. You change it. But you're going to have to grow up before you do, and you'll figure that out. Okay? The presence is the word at work. Presence of God is the word at work. When, you, when a son embraces his wilderness, he gains the authority to prepare someone else for theirs. I feel like I'm dropping a bunch of little small hints to you guys, but you guys need to just hear it, you know. I was, I, was, I was praying one day, and I, 
I was asking the Lord some things, and, and he took me to the place where Jesus fed the multitudes. And, I, and I, I've, many of you have heard this because you, you know you've been here long enough. But he, he, Jesus told me, he said, it was, it's the, it was my son. Or God told me, he said, my son's hunger in the wilderness was his authority to feed the multitudes. Him going through that kind of pain gave him the authority to be able to heal that kind of hurt. So sometimes something that you're going through that's difficult has nothing to do with you at all. It has everything to do with who God's about to send you to, and you've got to gain the authority for them because they can't gain it on their own. But yet if you're selfish, the only thing you're going to do is sit there and pour me and pity pot, and God, why do you treat me like this? And he's like, you are such a baby. Why can't it be me preparing you for somebody who's coming. Why can't you understand I love people also, just not just you. <laughs> I love other people too. But if you say no to your process, you're saying no to somebody else's entry into the things of the kingdom. I don't know what you think about me. It really doesn't matter to me. But if you've ever been blessed by anything I've ever said to you or was to you, it came not because I'm so great and was born this way. It came because before you probably even believed in Jesus, I was suffering when the rest of the church told me, you don't have to go through that. You can walk away. You don't have to believe that. You don't have to, you don't have to go through that. If you see an anointing on anybody's life, it did not come because they were gifted. You can't lay hands on that kind of double portion anointing. People are like, oh, I want a double portion. Do you realize Elijah, Elisha walked with Elijah for 14 years in submission before he got that double portion anointing? People just want to come to a conference and see some guy on the stage with some sort of power and then come up to a stage. Oh, give me a double portion of what you have. You're lazy. You'll never get it. Suffer for a while. And you'll see your anointing grow. You know why? Because the anointing grows in the power of resurrection. Somebody's waiting on you to get through your moment because your moment is their preparation. Jesus' pain was for our glory. His suffering was for our, our restoration. If we're made in his image, then so is yours. We have got to train our minds to stop looking at what we're going through as some sort of psychotic God that's causing us to go constantly through pain. We go through pain because we have the ability to resurrect when they don't. You see that? The heathens don't have the ability, but we do. So we do it for them. Amen? You have to be prepared. Oh, jeez. I don't have time. The things you go through in your life, the answer to some of the things that you have, you're praying about, most oftentimes is what you already possess. You just don't realize it. 
Moses went to the to uh, the the wilderness to the desert because he was running from the plan of God because he failed and everything else. And while he was there for forty years, he was walking with a staff. Staff in the Hebraic understanding is one of power, one of stability, one of identity. Each staff, each tribe had their own insignia. And so it represented power, identity, and authority. And he feels like a nobody on the backside of the wilderness. He's got his staff, and he's just doing his daily deal. And all of a sudden, he turns aside one day because he sees this bush burning. And God begins to speak to him about his authority and his destiny, his power, and his plan for his life. And he doesn't believe it. Go read the story. He's arguing with God. He says, I can't do this. How am I going to do this? I don't have anything. And, and he says, how are they going to know that, that your word is true? What's God say? He says, what's in your hand? The thing that he always carried, he always had, he always possessed was the key to his next season, yet he didn't believe it. But when you let God take the thing that he's given you that you've always had, which is your identity in Christ, and you let him put his mark on you, and you let him use it, it begins to confirm your identity, the thing you've always possessed, your authority, your power, your insignia of being God's, begins to confirm the word that he's telling you to speak. The answer was always there. The problem was you never threw it down before him. The problem was you never released it before him and let him do what he wanted to do with it. You held it as it was your own. Your staff, your authority, your identity, it's not for you. It's to deliver the nations. You need to get rid of the version of Christianity where you're trying to feel better about yourself and be comfortable in your own skin. It's not the point. Forget how comfortable you are in your own skin. Forget it. Put your focus on someone else and learn how to suffer. Learn how to be prepared. Because as a son, that is how you grow. You want to increase? Submit. When you submit, you'll find authority. When you find authority, you'll find power. Submit to what? One, your authority, spiritual, physical. Two, your circumstances. Yes, your circumstances. What does it say? It says, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What if it's a bad thing? Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. What if I don't like it? Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In other words, whatever you can't control is God's will. So learn to give thanks and suffer in it. Learn to give thanks and see through it. This is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. This is the will of God. You want, what's the will of God for my life? People come to me and say, what's the will of God for my life? What's happened to you right now? That's the will of God. Well, I don't like that. Well, he doesn't like your Adamic nature either. Get rid of that, and you'll see your circumstance in a whole different light. Because your circumstance is about somebody else. It's about the glory of God. 
It's about you being prepared for something in this future, not paying taxes and dying, but living and breathing in an authority where you become the written word of God in someone else's life. It's not just what you're saying. You've become it and you've proved it because the devil has come, your wife has come, your kids have come, your husband has come, your coworkers have come, your boss has come, and they've all pushed you to the point of breaking and you stood and you said, I will only bow before the word of God in my life. Amen? Let me stand up. Sorry I kept you guys. Just raise your hands if you're interested. Father, we just thank you for your word. Your word is your identity and your nature. And in your son Jesus, your word is our identity and our nature. So Lord, we thank you for those moments where we're being pinched, those hard, painful times, because you're exposing the two realities. Not so that you can shame us for the one that we sometimes fall into, but so you can make clear to us which one we should turn away from and the, which one we should turn to. So I thank you for giving us the choice still to this day that we get to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or we get to eat from the tree of life. The knowledge of sin or the life of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that you would give grace to those who've heard this morning, that you, you would empower them to be able to choose the tree of life and they would understand that their preparation takes, it takes suffering. It takes difficulty, it takes hardship, it takes trial, it takes walking with you year after year, month after month, situation after situation, but you're always faithful and you're always good in every one of them. If we just look at you and see you, we are being prepared to, to bear the image of our Father. What an honor, what an honor to bear the image of God. Thank you, Father, for those who are willing to receive this message. Bless them, bless our fellowship today, bless our service tonight. Carry these people safely to their journeys. May you keep them, Lord, and make your face shine upon them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.